The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Uh, if you're visiting today, or maybe you've been out for a while, uh, just to let you know and bring you up to speed, we're going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We started in verse 1. We're going to go all the way through 16 chapters, one of Paul's longer epistles. Uh, Corinth was a city where he went and preached the gospel, and by God's grace got a response positively from folks who became believers and then he began to build that little church and he stayed there as the pastor of that church for a year and a half and the church began to grow. He also got some very strong resistance while he was there in Corinth, a very pagan, worldly and secular city that was hostile to Christianity and he endured by God's grace and after a year and a half of being the pastor there he went on to other ministries, planted other churches, went to Ephesus immediately and uh, did work there and going back to Jerusalem. And so after he left the church that he planted and started and discipled folks there, a couple of years have gone by and he's hearing word that Corinth is having, the church at Corinth is having problems. And Paul got word of it from several sources and so he writes this letter to address their problems as an apostle, but also as their former pastor and the one that actually founded the church. Um, so he's speaking authoritatively as a spokesperson for God himself, as an apostle, giving divine revelation, because that's what 1 Corinthians 16 is. This Every chapter, every verse, every word of 1 Corinthians is inspired by God. In other words, every word. Yeah, Paul wrote it, and God used his personality but the Spirit of God was carrying Paul as he wrote it supernaturally somehow, ensuring that every word that was written down was what God said, not just what Paul said. This is not just human opinion. This is God's opinion. That's what 1 Corinthians 16 is. And so he writes this letter. This letter is primarily a letter of, con of uh, correction. So if you want to do your devotions and get a warm fuzzy in the morning in your scripture reading, you probably don't want to go to 1 Corinthians first because the entire time from beginning to end, Paul's pretty much wagging his finger in the saints of these sinful, rebellious, arrogant, misguided, self-deceived Christians. That's just reality. And again, this isn't just Paul who's on a tirade because he had a bad day. This is inspired Scripture from God. Paul uh, wrote it the way God wanted him to write it. It is binding everything about it from the words to the tone to the content is exactly how God wanted it written and addressed to them. And God has preserved this scripture for his church throughout the ages because he wants us to go through it and apply it to our life as well because it is relevant. It's the living word of God. So 1 Corinthians is just a wonderful letter that is so practical in dealing with church life in 2014. Especially as a pastor and I read the content of 1 Corinthians, I'm thinking, oh yeah, we got that issue in our church. Oh yeah, we got that problem at our church. Oh yeah, we got that going on at our church. So from a leadership point of view, very practical, very helpful. Um, so Paul's addressing Christians who have problems in their church, and they are severe problems. And he knows that. And they are primarily over... Uh, division in the church, immorality in the church, and bad theology that has crept into the church. Those are the three main issues that he confronts. He confronts them in that order. 
He addresses the division in the church or the lack of unity in the first four chapters. He spends four chapters dealing with the division in the church. He spends only a short two chapters on the immorality in the church. A serious case of immorality in the church. Four chapters on division. Two on serious immorality. And then for the rest of the book, chapters 8 to 16, he deals with theological issues, but he deals with several different theological issues, many different theological issues, and uh, gives certain time and attention to it, but nothing like four chapters on one topic of division. To me, that is telling with regard to dangerous problems you might have in your church, whether it's immorality, sexual immorality, bad or quirky theology, or division among the body. Paul knows that the division issue could be the most devastating most quickly. He knows this. That's why I think he deals with it first. That's why I think he deals with it so comprehensively for four chapters. And one of the reasons that the division issue is requires so much time and attention is because you're dealing with personalities, attitudes, motives, and interpersonal relationships. Not so with an immorality issue. I mean, an immorality issue is pretty, oh, there it is, easy to spot, that's wrong, don't do that, it's isolated, you can deal with it. Same thing with bad theology. Oh, that's being taught, mm, that's, that's wrong, here's the truth, whatever, move on. Division, oh, it's very complicated, very dynamic, um, and it can spread like a cancer. And Paul knows that. As a matter of fact, so Paul spends four, that's what we've been doing for four weeks. If you've been getting exhausted and tired and weary as I have been preaching in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4, then that means you have been listening. You're getting the message. That's what it says. I want to get out of chapter 4. That's why I chose so many verses today. I am sick of chapter 4. I am sick of division. Let's go on to something else. Let's get into some immorality in chapter 5. But this is just one continual argument that he is addressing. And so as I'm reading to this today, so I, I took chapter uh, 4, 6 through 21. That's a big chunk of Scripture. We have not tried to address this many verses uh, in one sermon since we've been in Corinthians. And some people on staff were saying, I'm loco, I am crazy. You're never going to do it. You ain't going to get through all those verses this week, McManus. I said, yes, I, I believe in a God of miracles. We, we got to. The reason we have to is because 6 through 21 is actually one statement made by Paul. You can't divide it up. You can't separate it. It goes together. It's one continuous argument. It's like uh, Paul just got up and he's talking to the crowd and he began a sentence and it just was one long run-on sentence from verse 6 to 21. And he can't be interrupted. It has to be kept together so that we don't lose the continuity. So there's a lot of content here. So I'm not going to address every uh, jot and tittle of every verse as we go today, but I am going to hit the high points of his main argument and the main theme. One of the main themes that I took away from 6 through 21, and you can note this, is in this, Paul is concluding his argument that he started in chapter 1. He is concluding his perspective on how to address the division issue at the church at Corinth. Hence the title of the sermon, Paul's Remedy, Paul's Remedy, Paul's Remedy for Division. He is now reaching, he's laid out his thoughts, he's diagnosed the problem, he's used illustrations, and now he's going to bring it all to a conclusion. That's what this is, this is the conclusion to his argument of uh, the first three and a half, four chapters. This is the coup de grace of Paul's argument on the issue of division in their church. That's why it has to be kept together, and the main 
thing that I see in this is the leadership of Paul. This exemplifies Paul's incredible godly leadership of the way he deals with a very delicate, sensitive, potentially volatile, divisive issue in the church. He, he's the master pastor in the way he deals with this, and shepherd and overseer. But he is being led by God in his wisdom on how to do this. He didn't do everything perfectly, but in 6 through 21, his final statement, I think, are marks of a godly leader. And here's what I mean. I just came up with four points. And this is part of the introduction. Four points of godly leadership exemplified by Paul in verses 6 through 21 of chapter 4. In in this section, by the way, in 6 through 21, <laughs> uh, several commentators, that I was reading this week, they all noted that verses 6 through 21 and 1 Corinthians 4 are routinely omitted and negated from lectionaries in churches around the world. And that has been true for so many, so many years. And by lectionaries, uh, that's prescribed scriptures that are to be read and preached in denominational churches. So this week we will be in this passage, and this week we will address this passage, and this week we'll address this passage. And it is noticeable that this passage is not in most of the lectionaries. In other words, most churches aren't preaching on it. They skip it intentionally. Why? Because look down at your Bible at 1 Corinthians 4, and just can you see the smoke rising from the pages in chapter 4? Because this section here, 6 through 21, is the most scathing rebuke that Paul gives in Scripture to a congregation of fellow believers. Smoke is coming out of his ears when he's writing it, Smoke is still flowing from the pages after it's been sent and delivered while they're reading it. It is. There's just no way around it. You can't candy coat it. But again, this isn't just because Paul's having a bad day. This is what God wanted him to write. We need to embrace it. We need to use it to look in the mirror of our own life as a Christian and as a church, assimilate it into our life and see if there's anything that we can do to find edifying. All Scripture is... Inspired by God, profitable. All Scripture is profitable. We can't skip this section. All Scripture is uh, given by God, profitable. It teaches us, so we need to embrace it. We can be taught and edified and challenged and rebuked from this passage. That's what's going to happen, these principles. You're going to read this and say, wow, Paul, he doesn't seem like a very nice guy. He's not a very nice pastor. Uh, no, actually he is, and he's going to talk about that regarding his motive, because there would be Christians who would question his motives as though he's being overly defensive or trying to protect himself or over the top or too critical or too harsh or his tone isn't loving or like Jesus. And no, that's not true at all. So here are these principles of godly leadership that are exhibited by Paul here. Number one, Paul is an honest leader. He's an honest church leader. And that's put on display here in these verses, but also in all four chapters. In other words, He's honest about what? That churches have problems. Churches have Why? Because people have problems. And you take, a, take 200 people that have problems, you put them all together, you've got one big problem. That's a church. Because people are sinners. Paul is honest about that. The reason that's so important is because I've worked in several churches over the years, and, and I've seen and I've got friends who are pastors, and time and time again, too many times, uh, pastors, church leaders, elders aren't honest in dealing with the problems in their church. What is typical, sadly, is there's problems a-brewing and they are pushed aside, minimized, downright ignored. That is not good. That's not healthy. Because all that's going to do is allow it to fester and grow and fester 
and spread like cancer. And Satan's doing his work. So Paul's honest. Um, we got problems. We're sinful people. We got problems in the church. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest apostles there ever was, wrote 13 books in the New Testament. An exemplary Christian in every church that he pastored, every church that he planted, there were problems. Every epistle out of the 13 epistles that he wrote, every single one of them was dealing with problems in that church. So that's a great, honest perspective that Paul has. So he's honest about problems and sins. And you know what? As a church, we need to be honest as well. And the church leaders in every local church need to be honest about the problems. Another uh, godly leadership characteristic about Paul, in addition to being honest, is he was courageous. There's another one. For many church leaders, it's just a temptation of being a human being, is to not be courageous in the face of trials or problems. The human inclination is to run away from problems. Oh, I don't want to deal with that. And really, at the heart of it is the courage you have, whether you're going to face it or not, being a fearless leader, and that's what Paul was. He was courageous. He was going to confront problems head on. He wasn't going to run away from problems. I've seen that happen at too many churches. When you're confronted with a problem at a local church, usually having to do with relationship division problems, there, there are two tendencies that are extremes that are not helpful. They are destructive that pastors or elders will typically do in the face of a problem. And the two extremes are they will either ignore it and run away from it so because out of fear and a lack of courage usually. And as a result, you got the ship on the ocean and nobody's manning the steering wheel. And so it's just going astray all over the place. And as a result, they just don't do anything about the problems and they just like like fire consume the church and it grows and grows and grows and just gets totally out of control. And that's from doing nothing. I've seen that many times. The other extreme is where some leaders who are over-anxious and micromanagers and authoritarian want to jump in and try to solve the problems too quickly, too severely, with a lack of grace, short-circuiting what God might do, not getting all the information, and then chasing people out the church, judging people inappropriately and wrongly, not getting a full diagnosis of what's actually going on, not being patient and waiting on God. And they also create an absolute mess in the local church. I have witnessed this firsthand at churches where I've been in with fellow brothers who are pastors at churches. So that, those are just natural human tendencies. Paul had the beautiful balance. He was courageous. He was fearless. He wasn't afraid of conflict. He was going to get out and lead. He wasn't going to be passive. He wasn't afraid to admonish people. And key, he wasn't afraid of man. He did not have the fear of man. That's really what cripples a lot of leaders in difficult situations. Is Well, what's member so-and-so going to think? What's deacon so-and-so going to think? What's this member family going? They might leave the church. And that really cripples uh, leaders who aren't courageous and aren't willing to get out and lead with God's confidence and deal with the conflict. And, and Paul was willing to do it. He actually, last week, if you were not here, I'd encourage you to listen to the sermon. Some of you might be aghast at some of the terminology Paul was using where he basically told Corinthians who were very judgmental, divisive, bad attitudes, wrong thinking, critical of Paul and his ministry, critical of other pastors, critical of the leadership of the church. And he said, you know what? It is totally wrong of you to judge the leaders of the church and their preaching and their style of preaching. As a matter of fact, I don't really care what you think about me. Only God is the judge of my ministry. That's what he said last week. Verses 1 through 5. So he, he's laying it on. He is being courageous. He's not saying this out of an illegitimate defensiveness. This is what God 
wanted him to say because this is what the Corinthians needed to hear. They were all high and mighty in and of themselves. He's going to talk about that specifically here in 6 through 21. So Paul was an honest leader. He was a courageous leader. Also very important, he had a right perspective as a leader in the midst of conflict. Boy, that is difficult in the church to do. When you are a leader in a local church and you've got a problem and things start percolating and getting out of control, it is incredibly difficult to remain an objective in the conflict. Very difficult to do. Because many times you are sucked into the conflict. And if you're sucked into the conflict, it's almost impossible not to be subjective about it. And the Apostle Paul, amazingly, with the grace of God and his giftedness, and also clinging to the truth of Scripture as his guide, he was able to remain objective in the midst of the division. I mean, think about it. Who's the center of the target in this controversy he's been dealing with for four chapters? He was. Because three-fourths of the church, potentially in Corinth, have turned their back on their founding pastor. How awkward for him to stand up and try to defend biblical truth and defend their critical spirit when 75% of them have a critical spirit towards him. And so how can that not be looking just, well, Paul's just being defensive. No, he was being biblical. And he was being objective. He had the right perspective. He had the right perspective in many ways. He was objective. Here's This is huge, this next one. He came up with a proper diagnosis. Man, that is so important. That is important in dealing with problems in the church. That's important as a leader of a church. That is very important. Probably one of the most important things in individual biblical counseling. You cannot give legitimate, binding, life-changing, personal counsel to anyone until you have the correct diagnosis. And you cannot have the correct diagnosis until you have, get this, all of the information. All of the facts. And many pastors, counselors, uh, undermine, circumvent the entire biblical counseling process by they hear a few facts and then boom, they jump to a conclusion and they give wrong advice because they didn't get all the facts. That's huge. So the Apostle Paul, he was a master of this. He gets all the information. He gets all the data. Very beginning of the chapter, we know he had about, or from the book, he had five different sources of information. Almost all of it was first-hand information that he had. He wasn't going to rush to a judgment. So he had the right perspective. He came up with the proper diagnosis. He was also thorough. That's why in a courtroom when you raise your hand, you say, well, I'm going to tell the truth. That, that isn't what they say. Do you promise to tell the truth? That's not the statement. It's, I promise to tell the truth. Get this, the whole truth. That means insofar, I'm not just going to be selective and give a few bits of information that are in my favor. I'm going to speak the whole truth. That is coming up with all the data, all the information, the right perspective, giving a proper diagnosis. And that's what Paul did. Uh, so Paul had the right perspective. Uh, he had the big picture because he was an overseer. That's what overseer means. An elder is an overseer. An overseer means being able to get out from the myopic, uh, small-scale microcosm of the individual conflict and to rise above it and see the big picture of all parties involved, all the characters, the entire situation, and then you can make a more objective assessment of the problem. And Paul was great at that, seeing the big picture as an overseer. That's what overseers are supposed to do. See the big picture, not just their own little corner of church life. Um, and then also, regarding Paul's right perspective, is he knew his place as a leader in the church. Because two things were true that apparently on the surface contradict each other. The Apostle Paul 
was a first and foremost, he was a servant of the church. He was a servant of the people. It was not his church. The church didn't belong to him. He belonged to the church. That's what we talked about last week and in chapter 3. So of all the saints in the church, he was the lowest of the low. But at the same time, also last week, the balance to that is he has delegated authority as a pastor in the church. And he's telling the saints, you can't criticize my authority that God has given to me in a certain area of responsibility in the church. You can't criticize my preaching illegitimately before the time. So there's that delicate balance, being a servant way down here and at the same time being a leader in the church whom God is exercising his authority through. And again, the human tendency is to abuse either one end of the spectrum as a pastor. Very difficult balance to maintain. Paul did it wonderfully. And then also he had the right perspective because he was in tune with his motives. Again, he wasn't just lashing out, oh, the Corinthians, oh, they were criticizing my, my preaching? Oh, they think Apollos is better and more skilled orator than I am? That, those weren't the motives by which he's responding. His motives were kept in check. Just a godly leader. He was honest. He was courageous. He had the right perspective. And then the last one, Paul, very important, he was solution-oriented. That, that comes out of the fact of his, under, his faith in God. God is bigger than all of this. That's why he penned Romans 8.28 that God works all things together for good. God works all things together for good for those who love Him. God works, all th- God works bad things together for good. That doesn't say that bad things are good. It says God takes the bad things that are truly bad things and works them together for good in His plan. Paul knew that. He was committed to that. He believed it. And he knew that was true of God. And God can even take this, these horrible things going on in Corinth and all the division and infighting. Somehow, in the end, God could work that for good, for His glory. And many times we don't know what that good is. That's, that's God's call. But he was solution-oriented. He was hands-on with the problem, even in the face of criticism. He was proactive. He was out ahead. He was deliberate. He was focused. He was offering biblical solutions. This is what a leader needs to do. A leader needs to lead and be solution-oriented. Not just, here's the problem. Oh, isn't this problem horrible? And then just kind of meditate on the problem and how horrible it is. That's not leadership. That's not biblical. That's not what God wants. We are to be solution-oriented as we are people who walk by faith, believing that God is sovereign and He turns or works all things together for good, for His glory. So it was important to be reminded of um, what Paul's actually doing here and how God is using him. So let's go ahead now and look at the outline and handout I gave you, the verses 6 through 21. We'll just highlight some of the truths. Paul's remedy for division. Uh, I came up with five things about the Apostle Paul in terms of how he's talking to them and closing his argument as he brings it to a climax. Let me actually give all five answers to you up front because that will give you kind of the big picture of where we're going. So number one is Paul's interrogation, verses 6 to 7. He actually interrogates the Christians like a lawyer. Why is he doing that? Well, he's trying to get to the truth and remind them of the truth can't take action unless you're thinking on truth. Uh, number two is Paul's sarcasm. I remember a, a fellow guy that I was discipling at a previous church, younger guy, youth pastor, and it was probably like 10 plus years ago. I just remember for some reason he asked me, uh, is it okay for Christians to be sarcastic? I thought, wow, that's a, hmm. I don't know. I'm sarcastic all the time, but it's probably wrong. Uh, <laughs> so don't follow my example. 
And we actually began studying the scriptures, and so we're going to talk about that. Uh, number three is Paul's example. He does that in contrast to the Corinthians' example. Uh, number four is Paul's motive. Very important in light of the very scathing, harsh, rebuking language that he uses up to verse 13 in the event that some might question Paul's motives. Polling rank, some people might accuse him of. And then finally, number five is uh, the solu- Paul's solution to this problem. Very practical solution that uh, Paul trusts will be helpful. So let's go ahead and look at verses 6 to 7. As now Paul is, uh, you know, uh, the, their problem regarding the division had to do with their attitude and the way they were thinking. And the problem was they had embraced the wisdom of the world. They've embraced false standards of what is legit, what's wise. They've embraced Greek philosophy, Greek stoicism. Uh, they became inflated in their thinking, big-headed, arrogant, and conceited about how much they knew. Here it is, three years after the Paul planted this church, and they have actually come, many of them have come to believe that they are actually smarter than Paul on spiritual and religious matters. So they are puffed up, arrogant, lacking humility, cocky, critical, and as a result, they're divisive. And they look down their nose at Paul, they look down their nose at other ministers, and they look down their nose at people who don't agree with them in the church. And as a result, you've got a fractured, balkanized, divided church. So he's going to interrogate them um, to remind them of their false wisdom that he's been arguing for four chapters. So let's go ahead and look at verses 6 and 7. So now is his transition now. Now he's transitioning. He's closing his argument. Uh, now these things, brethren, these things, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos. What, what things has he figuratively applied? Well, that's in chapter 3, starting at verse 5. He, he compared, since they were fighting and arguing and pitting Paul against Apollos, well, Paul's better than Apollos. No, Apollos is better than Paul. And like as though they're enemies with each other. He reminds them and says through a metaphor, wow, you guys got the wrong perspective of Paul and Apollos. Paul and Apollos uh, aren't Greek philosophers. They aren't Stoics or Epicureans who are to be admired and praised and put up on a huge uh, marble pedestal and worshipped. You got the wrong perspective of your pastors and leaders in your church. And so the metaphors he uses to say, you need to have a realistic view of your pastors. The Bible teachers, they are, and the metaphors he used was they're like farmers. They plant seeds. So Paul planted and Apollos watered and somebody came along and was pulling wheat and they're working together on God's field. So they're not these high and mighty marble statues. They're lowly servants like farmers in God's field. That was chapter 3, verse 5 and following. Then the other metaphor he used talking about Paul and Apollos is, well, they're like, they're not, Pillars made or statues made out of marble and demigods. They are farmers and they are also like construction workers. And that was his metaphor in chapter 3, verse 10 and following. They're hammering and they're working together and they're carrying the wood together and they're building God's house. It's God's house. It's God's building and you are the building. They aren't preeminent. They're just the lowly workers helping put it together. You guys got the wrong view of church leadership. And they work for God, by the way. They don't answer to you in the congregation. That's what Paul said. Jesus was their master. Uh, so those are the metaphors that he's just talking about. Boy, you guys need to understand. Uh, through these, So I was being figurative and using metaphors, talking about uh, Paul, me, and Apollos to get a point across. Now I'm going to get a little more frank with you and blunt. 
that's what he's talking about. So now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself. Why do you use a metaphor? A lot of times you do it to help people learn and, oh, I get it. And you're depersonalizing it. In other words, you're not sticking your finger in their face and calling them out by name. It's, well, here's what's going on. Here's a metaphor. And this is kind of going on. So please learn from the metaphor. And so it's actually kind of a gracious way to rebuke someone in this context. And that's what Paul's been doing. Uh, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written. The main thing he's trying to teach them is to be biblical. And the Corinthians uh, have gone outside the confines of what is allowed and taught by Scripture. So that's a very important phrase. It's an absolutely key phrase at the middle of verse 6. Corinthians, do not exceed what is written. Don't go beyond the boundaries of Scripture. Every time we do that, we get in trouble. Uh, a synonymous phrase is just simply being unbiblical. When you're doing something, thinking something, operating in such a way that's beyond Scripture. It violates Scripture. That's all he's saying. And the Corinthians have been violating Scripture. And specifically, how have they been going beyond what is written, going beyond what is Scripture? What is written? Well, six times he's quoted the Old Testament Scripture to rebuke them and say, you know what? You are puffed up. You are arrogant. You think you are wiser than everybody. And yet, Scripture, six times in the Old Testament, says that God is wiser than human beings and humans are idiots and fools. Do you not? Do you, don't you remember that from the Old Testament? That, that means us. We are foolish. We are myopic. We are finite. We are, can be self-deceived. God and God alone is the only one that has all-knowing wisdom. And that's why he said repeatedly, do not boast in human wisdom. Don't boast in any human. Boast only in God, 1 Corinthians one thirty-one, which comes right out of Jeremiah chapter 9, if you're going to boast, boast only in the Lord because he's the only one worthy of boasting in. And he's just hammering that message away. And so now he's saying, do not go beyond what is written because you've done it many times and that's why you're in the mess that you're in. You keep violating Scripture. Boy, that's practical application for us, right? Let us try to conduct our lives and think in a way that is in keeping with Scripture so that we don't go out of the bounds of Scripture. We have to bring everything back through the screen, the funnel of scripture so that's absolutely key um don't exceed what is written in scripture in order that no one might become arrogant see when you start going beyond what is scripture and you're not accountable by scripture anymore you can become arrogant we as human beings will become arrogant arrogant by the word uh that word in verse six arrogant it means literally puffed up or inflated you guys got big heads and you got big heads because you weren't willing to subject yourself to biblical truth you want to keep yourself from getting a big head? Subject yourself. Be humbled by Scripture. Allow yourself to be rebuked by Scripture. That's why you can't skip Corinthians chapter 4 when you're reading. You've got to keep going. You've got to read all of Scripture. All of it is beneficial. Yes, yeah, some of it will soothe your soul. There are many wonderful, beautiful promises in Scripture. And then there are hard parts like this passage today. No, we've got to take that as well. We need to be rebuked. We are sinful what the Bible says is what God says, and we need to hear what a holy God has to say to keep us on track. So welcome truths from Scripture that rebuke and admonish and make us feel guilty. That was the problem with the Corinthians. They weren't willing to do that in all areas. They, they had the problem that many of us have. Actually, let's look at the prophecy that Paul made because this is such an ongoing problem. has been since the time of Paul. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's just a great reminder. What do, you, what do you expect when you come to church in the mornings, by the way? Uh, don't answer out loud. Well, let's see, to meet with God's people, to worship God, number one answer. To meet with God's people, 
to hear some good songs, to sing, to eat some donuts, uh, have some fellowship. I mean, the answers abound, right? And some people, you know, people just have different goals and expectations and many to be entertained, actually, sadly, is kind of an American one. I want to go and be entertained. Sadly, many in congregations all over the world, Christian churches, they're like, they, they are like Olympic judges. They see it, they hear the music, and immediately they put up the scorecard. 6.5. Or the preacher preaches a sermon, and immediately when the preacher's done, 7.1. With no time of reflection, no time to meditate on it, no time to pray about it, no time to ask the Spirit of God to apply it to my life and rebuke me if necessary. Just this immediate reaction. Kind of like the NBA uh, All-Star game last week when they were having the slam dunk competition. Guy goes up and does a wow, zinger slam dunk, and then the three judges just whoosh, nine, ten, seven, whatever. There's no thought. It's just reactionary based on everything that is external and wow me. So if that is what we're looking at when we go to church, is I want to be wowed. I want to be entertained. I want to feel good. That's not necessarily the right expectation going into church. So that brings us back to 2 Timothy uh, the ministry of the preaching of the word where Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Verse 3, preach the word. Preach the word. That's the mandate of the preacher is just preach the word. doesn't say anything about uh, externals or superficials. It's just preach the word. Preach the Bible. Preach it accurately and let the Holy Spirit apply it to people's lives. I'm not the applier. I'm not the applicator. No preacher is or they shouldn't be. Just preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Get this. Look at the nature of the preaching. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. That is what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 21. He is reproving. He is rebuking. He is exhorting. And I think Paul's doing it with great patience and instruction. Get this. Here's the prophecy. Verse 3. Paul said, for the time will come. Well, we are there now. This is American Christianity for the most part. The time will come when Christians in the so-called Christians in the congregation, they will not endure sound doctrine. They don't want heavy duty teaching. Well, what do they want? Uh, they want to have their ears tickled. They want to feel good. That's what that means. Tell me what I want to hear. They will accumulate. And as a result, they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. You know what that means? They're going to go find teachers who say things that they want to hear. So that's a warning and a prophecy from Paul. That's what Paul was dealing with with the Corinthians because they lived in this culture that was high in entertainment. That's what Corinth was. They, they even had a theater in Corinth. They had a gladiator theater. You know what that was? That was just downright raw, guttural entertainment for the people in the masses. That's what they're used to. Entertain me, Paul. So Paul's giving his rebuke and his interrogation to remind them of how they should think biblically. So let's go back to uh, 1 Corinthians 4. Uh, and he keeps going, don't go beyond what is written in order that no one might become arrogant. See, puffed up in behalf of one against the other. And this is why you look down your nose judging other Christians. And here's where he gets uh, starts interrogating them, verse 7. He says, these are rhetorical questions, by the way, meaning they have the answer in the question. And he says, for who regards you as superior? One translator says, based on the, the Greek wording, this is how this is what it means for us. Beginning of verse 7, when Paul says, for who regards you as superior? In other words, Paul was saying, Corinthians, who do you think you are? Anyway, wow. That, that's a severe rebuke. Who do you think you are? 
You are puffed up. You are arrogant. You are wise in your own eyes. This is destructive. This is not humility. This is not the way of Christ. This is not the way of the apostles. This is not the way of the cross. This is the very antithesis. Who do you think you are? Second question where he interrogates them. And what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? That's an interesting question because what he's saying is you're boasting about the gifts that you have. You're boasting about the things you do and the gifts that you use, but remember, every gift you have, you got from God. It's not from you. It didn't originate with you. You're only a steward of it. God was the one that gave it to you, so you have nothing to boast in, even if you have an amazing gift. It's not yours. As a matter of fact, you don't own any good thing that wasn't given to you as a gift that you didn't deserve or that I didn't deserve. So that's an amazing concept and an amazing rebuke. But these Corinthians boasted about their giftedness, their wisdom. And even if they did have true giftedness and wisdom, they didn't earn it, they didn't deserve it. It came from God. So Paul's trying to put them back in their place, cut them down to the size. Uh, but if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it from God anyway? And if you do, that's, that's arrogant. So that's the interrogation. Then Paul goes on with what I called Paul's sarcasm as he continues the argument, 8 through 10. Should, is there ever a time where we should be sarcastic? Well, you've got to be careful there because most of the times with us as humans, we don't have the right balance. But Paul is sarcastic as he's being led by the Spirit of God. So this was legitimate in terms of his sarcasm. Jesus was sarcastic at times with people when he was rebuking them, and so this is a legitimate form of it. And Paul says, so now he changes gears after cutting them down and says, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings. Okay, the word king is key here. In their day, they lived in a world that was run by kings. We don't live in a country run by kings. So this concept is a little foreign to us. In Paul's day, a king was considered a person who actually had divine wisdom as he made decisions. They literally thought he knew more than everybody else. So this is a king. Everything about he's describing here was a king in Paul's day. Uh, kings had all wisdom. They had all knowledge. They knew more than the average person. Not only that, they were surrounded in an environment where they were rich and they were totally satisfied. They had everything they need in the palace and uh, in their presence. And so that's what he's saying. And they reign with authority as monarchs. And he's saying, wow, you Corinthians thinks you are kings because of your divine wisdom. So that's where he's being sarcastic. You're already filled. You have everything you need. You're totally self-sufficient. You don't need anything else. You don't need anything from God or me as an apostle. You've already become rich. You've become kings without us, by the way. Without us who? The apostles. You've become uh, kings without us. And I, man, but I wish you would become kings so that we also might reign with you. Paul's saying, you've got a worldly view of what a king is. I want to give you a biblical view of what a king is or reigning because... A biblical view is that, yes, we will reign, but it's in the future. It's not now. And Christians will reign, but not by themselves, apart from other Christians. In the future, Christians will reign with all other Christians, with Jesus as the head. And so he's correcting their thinking about what it means to be a king and ruling. Verse 9. Then he gets more sarcastic, and he compares their arrogant attitude about themselves and contrasts that with his lifestyle as an apostle and all the apostles. Verse 9, for I think God has exhibited us as the apostles last of all, as men condemned to death. What the specific terminology he's saying is, you know, God has made the apostles like uh, an exhibition when a general conquers a people and then he goes and gets the spoils. And some of the spoils are the prisoners that he takes and they are chained and then they are dragged through the city 
behind the victorious chariot of the general and the prisoners are dragged along and exhibited as a display before they go to execution so that all can celebrate the victory of the general. And so Paul's saying, you know what? We are so lowly and pathetic compared to you great Christians is we're like uh, put on exhibition, dragged through the slums, headed for execution. That's who we are. We apostles, yeah, go ahead, criticize us. Criticize Paul, criticize Peter, criticize Paul. Don't appreciate them. They're getting led to the gladiator games to be executed. The apostles are. So again, he's being sarcastic here. So I think God has exhibited us as apostles, last of all men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The word spectacle is the Greek word for theater, theatron, theater. We're, we're just show. Like the gladiator games. Verse 10, more sarcasm as he makes these contrasts. We are fools. We're idiots. Paul and apostles, we don't know what we're talking about. You Christians are so, you Corinthians are so wise. Us apostles, we're foolish, we're idiots, we're moronic is the literal Greek word. But you, Corinthians, you are prudent and smart in Christ. We, well, we're weak, these apostles. But you, Corinthians, you are so strong. You are distinguished. But we, the apostles, we're without honor. We're just a bunch of idiotic Galileans and uneducated other guys who don't have a whole lot of money or prestige or status. So that's his sarcasm. He's, he's making this stark contrast to make the point that, Corinthians, don't you get it? The way of Christianity is the way of persecution the way of lowliness, the way of humility, the way of the cross. That is the calling of the true Christian. And your mindset is totally vacant of that idea. You you forgot what it means to be like Christ, an imitator of Christ, who first and foremost was a suffering servant. And all the apostles were perfect examples and models of what it meant to suffer for Christ. That was their calling, that was their life. This is a great reminder for the materialistic American Christianity, right? We got it all. We want peace. We want comfort. We want happiness. We want entertainment. We don't want suffering. And if, if we do have suffering in our life, it's like this foreign weird thing we got to get rid of as soon as we can. When no, that is the calling of a Christian. Philippians 1.29, where Paul reminds Christians, you are called not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. If you have any kind of suffering in your life as a Christian, that's probably a good thing, not a bad thing. And that's what Paul's trying to accentuate here. Boy, man, we've got to be reminded of the cross, the cross, the cross, which I talked about in chapter 1 and 2. You forgot the cross. So he goes after sarcasm. He goes on to his example even more explicitly starting at verse 11. And he says, well, speaking of the apostles, to this present hour, right now, Paul's writing as he's writing this epistle. We, the apostles, are hungry and thirsty. We're being deprived of our food in on the mission field and as we do ministry for Christ we are poorly clothed we are roughly treated we are many times homeless we the apostles we toil working with our hands and Paul did that when he went to Corinth he initially didn't take any money from the Corinthian Christians he wasn't passing the plate he refused to take their money and he got a job a full time job on the side he worked very hard became a great example of hard work because he didn't want to be selling God's word for money. Because he knew what that culture was like. And how that could be used against him. Oh, you're just doing this for the money. And now Paul can say with a clear conscience, Man, I worked hard with my... I, didn't be, I wasn't asking you guys for money. I gave you the gospel for free. We toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. 
unlike you Corinthians, you criticize, ridicule, gossip. When we are persecuted, we, we just endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate and make peace. Not retaliating. We, we have become as the scum of the world. We are considered by the world the scum of the world. That's still true today. Most of the world thinks that the apostles were scum, worthless, idiots, accomplished nothing. Their leader was killed. They all died. 11 out of the 12 apostles and then the apostle Paul dying, getting murdered, I should say, for their faith. So they're considered the scum of the world. We are considered as apostles the dregs of all things even until now. That is the mark and the calling of an apostle. And the Corinthians did not perceive the Christian life that way at all. So that needed to be changed big time. And that's why he says, you know what? You need to be an imitator of me. Change your lifestyle and your thinking. If you want to be a godly, humble Christian, follow the example of the apostles. So that's Paul's example that he laid before them that they need to adopt. Uh, go on to the next one, number four. Paul's motive in all this. Again, Paul's not just being reactionary or defensive. He, tell, his, he gives us his motive in verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you. I'm not doing this to just try to embarrass you. That is not my motive. He knew that he was called an apostle. He knew that what he was writing was Scripture. I have pure motives because God let him know that he did. I'm not writing to shame you. I am writing to admonish you. We all need to be admonished, right? And especially young children by their parents need to be admonished, rebuked, disciplined. So when you love someone, when you truly love someone, that doesn't mean you always say yes to them. I mean, imagine applying that principle to parenting when your kids are younger and you just said yes to everything that they wanted to do. They would kill themselves, literally. Yes, Daddy. Or can I, I want to put my finger in this light socket. Oh, sure, anything you want, honey bunch. Won't have to deal with you tomorrow. Go for it. So saying yes is not the mark of love. Many times it's parameters and boundaries and rebuke and giving guidelines and restraints. Restraining our evil. Restraints from without. Restraints from authority. And that's what Paul says. Uh, this is necessary, this is needed, not to shame you, but to admonish you. Get this, as my beloved children, because I love you. Because I love you. I'm doing this out of love. And he says, because you are my beloved children. What does he mean by that? Paul is saying, I was the one that came in and gave you the gospel, and you heard the gospel first from me, and you got saved under my ministry. I was the one that God used who brought you to Christ. I am your spiritual father. And then he left. And they were already Christians. And then Apollos came later and he taught them. Apollos was not their spiritual father. He was their pastor, discipler, elder, overseer. He was not their spiritual father. And so Paul's saying, I'm your spiritual father. So we have a unique and special relationship in Christ. A precious, unique bond that can never be replicated or repeated. And that's the heart of love. It's a father to his child. Verse 15, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ... Tutors is not is the NASB word, and it literally in the Greek is from pedagogy, a pedagogue. And the, get this, the NIV has the best translation. Yippee! The NIV says guardians. That's what it is. It's like a babysitter. You have one father, but you've had many babysitters taking care of you and watching you. And fathers have more loyalty to you usually than babysitters. 
So keep that in mind. I am your father. I'm not your babysitter. That's verse 15. For if you uh, were to have countless, countless guardians, leaders in the church, second and third generation leaders who don't know your history, who didn't bring you the gospel initially, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I'm the, I'm the one. So if you're questioning me and thinking I don't, don't have legitimate motives and I'm just being reactionary and retaliatory because you were criticizing my preaching, end those thoughts. I am addressing you because I love you and I'm your spiritual father. So that is his motive. It's a motive of the love of Christ. And then finally he concludes 16 to 21 of bringing all of this together for a remedy and a practical solution to these problems of division. And that's 16 through 21. So now he says, here's part of the, here's the solution. Start with verse 16. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Follow my example, what I just talked about. Humility, suffering, love for the brethren. Do that. Follow me. How could Paul say, follow me? Because he followed Christ. He wasn't saying he was perfect. But he modeled Christianity for them. By the way, this is practical for them because the Corinthians were a pagan society. They didn't have a history of uh, biblical religion in their midst. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have synagogues abounding. They didn't have this tradition and heritage of Moses and godly living that was their legacy. They were just a corrupt, pagan, secular, godless culture that had to begin Christianity from scratch and cold turkey when Paul came in. And so they have a lack of information. How do we do? Okay, we got saved. Amen. And they got their sins forgiven. But now what do we do? And they were at a loss because they had a minimal amount of information and they had a minimal amount of examples to live it out for them. How do we best learn as Christians? I mean, I look back at my life for the 20 plus almost 30 years of being a Christian. I'm thinking, wow, God has used other godly people, other godly examples to help me learn and grow my faith. I think that is one of the most significant things that has shaped my view of Christianity. It was being able to look at other examples. I grew up for 19 years pretty much as a pagan with no legacy of the Old Testament, Christianity, or godliness. And I had to learn from a blank slate, cold turkey. And I think, wow, when I got saved at age 19 and God put me in a, an environment of a Christian college and then in the environment of a seminary with very experienced, godly, older men for three plus years modeling Christianity for me, I was like, man, I needed that. That was absolutely critical because I didn't have any resources of my own. And that's why he's saying, be imitators of me. You don't have a lot of examples of seasoned Christian living in Corinth. He knew that. Verse 17, he gets practical again. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy. Uh, be an example of me. Well, Paul, if you don't get here, how are we supposed to know how you live? Well, because I'm sending my disciple and protege. Timothy, who is my disciple, he's worked with me. He got saved under my ministry. We have been dedicated friends for years. He knows me. He lives a life like me as I like try to live like Christ. So I'm going to send Timothy as that model who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ just as I teach everywhere in every church. I don't change. I don't change my message or my method wherever I go. I'm constant. Verse 18. Now some have become arrogant. And some among you, you become arrogant. You are uh, inflated as though I were not coming to you. You don't fear me. You think I'm a sissy and I'm a coward and I don't want to come confront the Corinthians. Well, you're wrong. So get that thought out of your mind. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon. I'm going to come to you and we're going to have to talk about these things. And it's going to be a hard talk. By the way, we know that Paul went and visited Corinth. It did not go well. It was ugly. It was messy. 
And then Paul had to write another letter to kind of straighten that mess out. So he does come. And I'm going to come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant and puffed up, but their power. Yeah, talk is cheap, talk is big. I want to see it with my own eyes when I get there, just how high and mighty some of you Corinthians are who know everything more than the apostles. Paul wasn't a coward. And then verse 20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. And primarily he's talking about the, the Spirit of God and the truth of God's Word is where real power is, not in human beings. Verse 21, uh, What do you desire? Shall I come to you? So you, you've got an option, Corinthians. You either take everything that I've just said, consider it seriously, try to apply it to your life, meditate on it, pray about it, submit yourself to God, be humble before God, Allow him to change you and deflate your inflated head. And if you choose that option, that's a good thing. If you refuse to listen to me as an apostle and as your pastor and a vehicle of the Word of God, then there will be consequences. So that's why he says, shall I come to you with a rod? A rod was like a stick that they would pull off of a tree that would be like a little whip that you would spank a child with right on the hiney. That's what a dad would do. Spankings. It's all over the book of Proverbs. So Paul's saying, I'm your spiritual father. He called them babies in chapter 3, verse 1. So if you're disobedient still, when I come, I'm going to have to give you a spanking. Do you want me to come and give you a spanking? Or shall I come with with love and a spirit of gentleness? It's up to you, Corinthians. And uh, we know from 2 Corinthians that, well... Probably many of them did respond positively and were humbled. And it, but it sounds kind of like a significant group that was very influential just simply hardened their hearts towards Pastor Paul. And they said, fine, bring it on. Try to give us a spanking. Because he came and visited and he was brokenhearted. It didn't go well. And then he had to write Second Corinthians where the problems were just even worse. Very sad, sad story. But a real story and God wants us to know this so that we can apply this to our own life and be realists about the Christian life. So I was thinking, how in the world do you summarize those four chapters of Corinthians? Well, I want to leave you with this. And actually, I'm going to, this, this can be your thought as you go into communion, as you're sitting there praying to the Lord. And if you know him personally, we invite you to participate in communion. And our view of communion here is what the bread and the cup are symbolic reminders of Uh, Christ's life and his death on behalf of sinners and that through his death which was a sacrifice to the Father and through his resurrection he offered forgiveness of sins to sinners anyone who would come to Christ and say uh, forgive me of my sin Lord thank you for dying as a substitute and you died the death that I deserved as a sinner and please save me from my sins and thank you for rising again from the dead and conquering death on my behalf and conquering my sin and now, I know, Lord Jesus, you are in heaven and you will come back again someday. And communion is to remind us of all these blessed truths that we have a relationship personally with Christ and we are forgiven by his work on the cross, represented through the bread and the cup. So meditate on that great reality. If you're a Christian, uh, as we break up into communion, uh, grab the cup and the bread, go and have a seat and just wait and we'll all partake together. And I want to read this verse out of Romans. Just So this would be a summary verse of all of the first four chapters of Corinthians. What was... What was the Corinthians' main problem? Their main problem, distilling it all down, is that they carried over their old life, their pre-saved life, 
and standards of the world into their Christian life. And we are all vulnerable uh, and guilty of doing that at times and allowing the sinful world to affect us the wrong way. And so that's why Paul says this in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I urge you, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, by the mercies of God. Man, you're going to need God's mercy to, to implement this. Present your body, really your life and everything about you, as a living and holy sacrifice that is acceptable to God, the one who saved you. Which is your spiritual service of worship. That is actually an act of worship. How you conduct and live your life throughout the week is actually living worship to the God who saved you. Well, how do you do that, Paul? Well, here's the key. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be squeezed into the mold of this fallen world. And we are all living in the fallen world, so we're all subject to this possibility. It's all around us. The television and everything else and the media is constantly trying to influence us the wrong way and conform us into their standards and into their world. And we have got to resist the tide. It's hard to do. It's got to be a conscious daily moment-by-moment effort. Do not be conformed to this world, but here it is, but be transformed. Metamorphosis by the renewing, and here's the key of your mind, how you think. It all has to do with, starts with the mind and how you think. Be transformed into Christ's likeness, starting with how you think, filling your mind with Scripture, biblical truth, resisting the lies of the devil in the world, in order that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.